You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and... I am back to empty out our college football playoff mailbag. This time around, we are focusing exclusively on the national championship. Charlie was with me earlier in the week, and we got a ton of questions this time around, as you guys might imagine, with games of this magnitude being played. You got the Orange Bowl and the semifinals, now the national championship. We got a ton of questions, and I really wanted to try my very best to get to all of them. I'm sure I missed one or two somewhere. I tried, guys. I tried to go back with all our various social media accounts, email, and get everything. So if I missed yours, I'm sorry, but I really want to answer everything this time. So we broke it into two episodes. Part one with Charlie was just Orange Bowl specific questions as one final look back at the Orange Bowl. I want to make sure we covered everything you guys wanted us to cover. But today, we are full speed ahead, all eyes on the rematch with Alabama in the National Championship game yet again. You guys have sent in a ton of great questions, as is always the case, taking us in a couple different directions. So I'm excited to kind of look at this game in a couple different ways. But let's go ahead, guys. Let's get right to it, man. I'm not even going to bore you with all the normal intro stuff. Let's get right to it and talk some football today because we got a lot to cover. And let's kick things off with a question from Pondside. Thank you for the question, my man. And what Pondside asks is, what's more important, slowing down Alabama's run game or slowing down their pass game? I like this question to start off with because it gets right to the point. We know we're going to have to slow down this Alabama offense to have a chance to get over the hump and actually win this game and end this seemingly interminable 40-year national title drought. But this kind of is a tough question to answer because in reality, the Alabama run game and their pass game are very closely related. They're intertwined. They work together in tandem. Alabama is a very, very, very heavy RPO football team. Whether they run it or throw it more often than not, it depends on the numbers count in the box. That's really what it comes down to. I mean, this is not unique to Alabama. This is modern offensive college football. That's just what it's evolved into. But Alabama has certainly leaned full force into that, even going back to not even this Arkeesian years, but going back to the Lane Kiffin years. It's really when you started to see more of the RPO game be implemented within their offense. And Bill O'Brien has carried that over. Think back at how many times have you seen them over the past four or five years take those little five, six, seven yard glance routes that let basically they're slant routes. They like to call them glance routes in their offense. How many times have you seen them take those quick little slant routes and then turn them into 50, 60 yard touchdowns? Over and over and over again. Those are RPOs, guys. And that's certainly not the only kind of RPO they run, but that's probably the most prominent, most famous kind of RPO that they run. But those plays are so effective because they only throw those routes when they have a numbers advantage in the passing game, when they have a defender that they're reading that takes a step forward or commits the run, and now you just throw the ball right where they should be, where they otherwise would be, and now you've got numbers in the passing game, and you have elite wide receivers, you have elite athletes there that can just take the ball and put six on the board. That's not their entire passing game, but that's a big part of their passing game. So yes, the run game, the pass game, it all works in tandem. But if you're putting together a game plan 
and you're trying to think, okay, what do I really have to take away here? Do I have to take away the run game? Do I have to take away their pass game? I think hands down, the answer is you've got to take away their pass game. You simply cannot allow Alabama to gut you through the air like they did in the SEC Championship game by hitting those explosive game-changing type plays. Now, it is a catch-22 because if you sit back to take those away, they will run the football. They are committed to running the football if they have the numbers edge in the box. And you saw against Cincinnati, they didn't really need to throw that ball one time. I think they could have beaten Cincinnati without throwing the football one time. They were just that dominant. Now, Cincinnati, that's a different kind of defense. They run a 3-3-5, very similar to what Arkansas did. And obviously, you guys know how we attack that. The clear way to do that is to run the football right at them. Cincinnati is also undersized in the interior, which is not the case with the Georgia defense. So it's a very different kind of defense they were facing. I don't think they'll be able to do that against us. But you have got to take away the pass first. Because if you do not, they will hit those explosive plays on you. We've seen that over and over again, not just earlier this year, not just a couple weeks ago, but basically every time that we have played them in the Kirby Smart era. Yes, Brian Robinson and their run game, it is capable of of doing damage and putting up points, but I would much rather force them to do that than give up these one, two, three play quick strike drives where they're scoring in an instant. All of a sudden, now in the blink of an eye, you're down 14 points and we're completely taken out of our offensive game plan. What you have to do is force them to go 10, 11, 12 plays down the field and execute their way to touchdowns. Not give up those cheap, easy touchdowns because that's how they kill you. That's how they kill you. And my simple calculus would be here. I don't think that you can execute consistently well enough to just run the football down our throat enough to win this football game. That would be my calculus here. We we know they can be with the pass game. We know if we give them that, that they can hurt us there. So if you're going to have to take away something that they do, I think you have to make them play left-handed, which in Alabama's case, I think is taking away the explosive pass game. Obviously, much easier said than done because that was essentially our game plan against Alabama a couple weeks ago in the SEC Championship game, and that clearly did not work out so well at all. Now, I don't think we went about the right way, but we were clearly trying to limit the big plays, clearly did not work, and we're going to have to make some adjustments there, which we will get to here in actually a couple minutes. We have a couple of questions that get to the crux of that issue, but let's go ahead and move on to our next question. This is probably the biggest question that we got coming out of the SEC Championship game. Well, I take that back. The biggest question we got, the most prominent topic, was clearly the quarterback situation, Stetson Bennett versus JT Daniels. We know that. But the second most common question we got was, why weren't we able to get more pressure on Bryce Young? Why did, why did we not dial up more pressure? That was the second big topic coming out of that first matchup with Alabama a couple of weeks ago. So Blockfresh, great question here, asked, what can we change to get consistent pressure on Bryce Young this time around? Well, honestly, it's not that complicated. We just need to actually bring more pressure. We just simply did not do that the first time around. Very rarely did we actually bring more than four rushers, at least in the first half. There were a handful of times, there were a couple of times here and there, but not as much as I think we needed to. Clearly what we were trying to do, as I said with the last question, was sit back in a too high safety shell. We were playing far too soft, in my opinion, because we did not want to give up the big play. The problem is if you sit back in that soft zone, in the softer man bail technique, what Alabama is going to do is they're going to take the underneath stuff. They got a lot of space there. And their athletes, when they get the ball wide open in space like that, they can just leave you in the dust. They're going to burn you and they're going to expose you for big touchdowns. And that's what we saw. So we really just didn't try, at least in the first half, to bring that much pressure. And Bryce Young is just far too talented. He's far too good to be allowed to sit back there and just pick you apart. That's exactly what he will do. He will pick you apart. We saw that. That cannot happen. Look at the games where he, I don't want to say struggled the most, but where defenses gave them the toughest games. Look at Texas A&M. Look at LSU. Look at the Auburn game. What do all three of those games have in common? They dialed up the pressure and they got after Bryce Young. Does that mean that they got him on the ground every single time? No, absolutely not. Does that mean that they were able to completely contain him in the pocket? No, they were not. Not every single snap. He's just that good. He's that talented. But you've got to make it tougher on him. You've got to make it uncomfortable for him. And the way to do that is to pressure him. Now, I do understand that there's a catch-22 there. It comes with some inherent risk when you dial up pressure, when you bring more than four defenders. That's kind of our MO. We try to bring a lot of simulated pressure. We don't like to bring more than four guys all that often. And we just kind of 
mix up who we're bringing and where we're bringing them from and make it really hard on quarterbacks. We show them different looks, drop guys, and just do a lot of different things, fire zones, all sorts of different stuff that we do defensively to make it hard on quarterbacks to know and diagnose where that pressure is coming from, where those rush defenders are actually going to be coming from. But I think it's Bryce Young. You simply got to bring pressure. You've got to bring five guys occasionally. I don't love bringing six because then basically you got man coverage everywhere across the board and you're basically counting on either getting to him, like getting him down or forcing a throwaway, which hopefully you can do, but you're probably not going to be able to do that every time. But we've got to take some chances there. We've got to be more aggressive coming after him because we saw what he can do when he's allowed to sit back there and just pick you apart. That does open you up to giving up potentially big plays in the back end. It absolutely does if you don't get to him. But here's the thing that makes me feel a little bit more comfortable. And I, I guess we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here because we have a couple questions about this. But this is what makes me feel a bit more comfortable about doing that in this game. There's no John Mechie to contend with. Jamison Williams, I don't want to say he's the only threat they have. Because they have some other guys that are good players. We're talking about Alabama here. I mean, Jaleel Billingsley is a guy that's not played a ton this year, but he's still a talented guy at tight end that can make some plays. Slay Bolden is fine. He's okay. He's not going to go out there and beat you based on talent alone. Like, if you leave him alone in man coverage, they can scheme up ways to get him open. But he's not a guy that's going to go out there and win one-on-one -on -one all that often. Really, it's Jamison Williams. You've got to account for him. And with John Mechie at the game, now you can afford to focus more attention on him. Maybe you're not as scared. I don't think you should be as fearful of those other guys beating you one-on-one -on -one and hitting those explosive plays. I'm not saying they can't do it. We saw Brooks hit one against Cincinnati, but they're far more likely to be able to do that with John Mechie out of the game. You can double Jamison Williams and feel a little bit more comfortable with the other guys of leaving your defenders in man coverage alone one-on-one -on -one with those guys because they haven't consistently shown they're able to beat you. With Mechie, it was always really tough to double either Mechie or Williams because if whoever you double, the other guy was good enough to beat you on his own. So that's my answer. I just think we need to get more aggressive and actually bring pressure, like actually bring five and six defenders at times and, and continue what we do with simulated pressure, change where those guys are coming from, change who it is and do different things in that regard. I really liked what we were doing with Tyndall and Quay Walker off the edge at times against Michigan. I think that's something that we can implement with a little bit more frequency against Alabama because I like both those guys rushing the passer off the edge. But bottom line is we just got to man up and get more aggressive defensively the second time around. And that leads into this next question from Ben Elliott. Good question here, Ben. Kind of touched on a little bit, but we'll get, go a little bit more in detail with this one. Ben asked, do you think we can hold up in man coverage against Alabama? We got beat a few times against Michigan. Yeah, Ben, we did, I guess, get beat a couple times against Michigan, but that's the risk you run with man coverage. You're never going to be 100%. Sometimes you're going to get beat in man coverage. Other guy's just going to make a play, and that's just the risk you have to run. That's the thread you have to needle when you're playing man coverage, especially now with how the rules are structured to favor offenses. It, it's, it's just the reality of the situation. But I do think we're going to have to play more man coverage, more tighter press man coverage against Alabama. And I, I do think, I really do, I think we can hold up a man coverage against them. I don't love the idea of leaving, leaving Jamison Williams one-on-one. -on -one. I think we always need to have some help over the top wherever he is. But I think, again, you can afford to do that when you don't have John Mechie in the equation. Because I right now, those other guys, whether it's Slade Bolden, whether it's Brooks, whether it's Latu at tight end, whether it's Billingsley, they haven't proven that they can consistently win one-on-one -on -one to where they're going to throw you out of that. I think you have to make them prove that. And yeah, sure, Michigan hit a couple of plays. I mean, obviously there was the long pass they had in the first half to Roman Wilson where he beat Darion Kendrick off the line. And there were a couple of plays on third down, but really they were minimal. I, I, don't, I don't think that Michigan had a great deal of success in beating us in man coverage. And the fact is we were more aggressive rushing the passer and we were able to get to the quarterback before he was able to actually take advantage of those man coverage one-on-one -on -one opportunities in the back end. Now, obviously Bryce Young with his escapability is certainly a different animal than Kay McNamara. There's no doubt there. But I think this is the risk that we're going to have to take to try to beat Alabama, especially with Mechie out. I don't necessarily love that concept because I don't think that we are elite in the back end. I think that we are good in the back end. I don't think our secondary is the weakness. As I've said all year long, I think you can, it's fair to say it's like the weakest point of the defense. That doesn't mean we're weak there, but we're certainly not elite at this point. So I'd be crazy to sit here and say there's like no concern whatsoever, but based off what we saw the first time around with how we approached the game plan, I think that's what we're going to have to do in this game and we're going to have to take some chances. Will they hit some plays? Yeah, probably. But 
I think you just have to roll the dice. You have to gamble and say, you know what? We're going to get to the quarterback enough. We're going to harass him enough. We're going to affect him enough that at the end of the day, we're going to come out on top. Okay, next up, Kyle has what I think might be one of the most, if not the most important questions heading into this rematch with Alabama next week. He asked, how will Alabama's injury situation impact the rematch? And this is something that I am watching extraordinarily closely because Alabama has a number of big time contributors that are at best questionable for this game. We know that John Mechie is out of this game, starting wide receiver. We know that Josh Job, starting cornerback, is out of this game. We know that Dalcourt, their starting center, is out of this game. Now, his backup, Seth McLaughlin, has started the last two games, but Dalcourt started basically the entire year at center. We know he's out of this game. Those three guys are out for the year. And that alone is significant enough heading into this game, but it doesn't stop there. You've also got right tackle Chris Owens, who actually replaced Damian George a couple weeks ago. He left that game with an ankle injury, starting right tackle. Emil Echior, their starting right guard, left the game with a shoulder injury. Nick Saban, we don't know right now, but according, you know, Nick Saban, he, Kirby learned from Nick Saban. He, Saban is very, very secretive when it comes to injuries. He's not going to really reveal anything because he doesn't have to. There's no injury report guidelines they have to follow. So we're not really going to hear anything much from him. We'll see if reporters can dig around and find anything out. But right now, even based on what Saban's saying, he's saying that they hope to be able to get those guys back. They don't know. They've only had one practice, I guess, on Monday was their first practice. So we'll see what ends up happening there. But there's a really good chance that Ekior and Chris Owens, their entire starting right side of their offensive line, is not going to play this game. And if they do play, they're not going to be 100%. And that's especially troublesome at right tackle with Chris Owens because his is an ankle injury. And that's tougher for a big, heavy offensive lineman to hold up on, especially when you're going up against our defensive front. That's one to watch there. And then you also have their other starting cornerback, Jalen Armour Davis, who had been dealing with an injury, was questionable coming into the Cotton Bowl, ended up starting the Cotton Bowl, looked kind of hobbly out there, and he left that game as well. So what is his status for the National Championship game? No one really knows at this point. So they are potentially facing some very, very serious injury concerns heading into this game. The Mechie one, I've already covered, so I won't really go much more in detail there, but I think that's the biggest one here because their passing game is very difficult to deal with when they've got two really good borderline elite wide receivers. I think that Jameis Williams is an elite wide receiver. I think that Mechie is a really, really strong complimentary piece. I don't know if he's a true number one guy himself in the vein of like we've seen Devontae Smith or Henry Ruggs or Jerry Judy in the past, but he's really, really good in tandem with Jamison Williams. He's one of the reasons Jamison Williams has been so dynamic and electric this year. And him out of the game, I know it's a small sample size, but you look and you see the game against Cincinnati and Jamison Williams was good, but he was not as explosive as he was previously because he did not have John Mechie working the underneath areas to kind of free him up. Now, maybe a part of that also was that Cincinnati is really good in the secondary, but it was interesting to kind of see how they had to use Jamison Williams in the absence of John Mechie. And then the offensive line situation, if both those guys out are out, if you've got no Emil Echior, you got no Chris Owens, that is a really, really interesting development because you guys know how strong we are on the defensive front. And we just got done talking about how important it was to get pressure on Bryce Young and to bring more pressure. Well, that becomes a lot easier when you're facing a situation where your opponent is playing two second string guys at right guard and right tackle. That becomes a problem for Alabama. It could certainly help our case. And then if you look at the cornerbacks, if they're without both starting cornerbacks, look, we might not be elite at wide receiver, but we are good enough to win one-on-one out there, especially if you're facing some backups. Now, it's Alabama. We know how well they recruit. They're deep, as deep as anyone, just like we are. So they have some really good players behind those guys, but you certainly rather face those backups than you would their starters. So I think this is something that bears a lot of watching over the course of this week. I know I'll be watching it very closely. And whatever I hear, I mean, I'll put it out there. I'm sure you guys will see it as well. But I really do think this is a major storyline heading into the national championship game. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, next up, let's go with a question from Guy. I always appreciate it, Guy. And Guy asks, if things start to go bad in this game, how do you think this team responds? He says he's not worried about the matchups anymore. He's worried that if Alabama lands a punch or two that our team will press. Can the cumulative toll of these repeated beatings be overcome if things go bad? I think this is a really fair question, Guy. At some point, talk about confidence, right? I talked about that on the last Mailbag episode, part one, in regards to Stetson Bennett and how the Orange Bowl victory and his great performance there might give him some confidence heading into this national championship game and how that might be important. Well, I think the inverse could be true as well. If you have this history of repeated failures against this same team and the national narrative that you always hear repeated over and over and over again, just kind of shoved down our throat is that Georgia can't get over the Alabama hump. If they get out to an early lead, it's certainly possible that that could quickly spiral lead to, to a sense of dejection on the sidelines. Like, oh my God, here we go again. We've seen this story before. And before you know it, we're just completely out of the game. And we get blown out. That's that's certainly a way to look at it. I don't think it's crazy to suggest that. Now, the reality is when we played Alabama, none of those games have played out that way. I mean, seriously, seriously think about this, guys. This is the thing with these Alabama games. We played them four times in the Kirby Smart era. We have jumped out two leads, first half leads, and sometimes two score first half leads in basically all those games. Go back to the national championship game, go back to the 2018 SEC championship game, go back to the game in Tuscaloosa last year, took the lead into halftime, go back to the SEC championship game a couple weeks ago. We jump out to an early 10-0 lead, but what inevitably ends up happening we give up that lead, we blow that lead, and things spiral out of control in the second half. That's what's happened every single time that we have played them in the Kirby Smart era. We have let them off the hook. Now, to their credit, they fought back and they got themselves off the hook. Sure, you can look at it that way. So I, I don't know if I'm overly concerned about that because none of the times that we played them have played out that way. Now, that certainly doesn't mean that this one can't play out differently. It doesn't mean that Alabama can't you know, take the early lead in a way they haven't against us before. It's certainly possible. And if that does happen, sure, it's certainly possible that our team starts to press and we get dejected and things start to spiral. I certainly hope that doesn't happen, but it's possible. But I do believe in the leadership on this team. That doesn't mean that we're infallible. We all saw what happened in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago. But we also saw how this team responded last week with the win over Michigan. They responded in the right way. I think this team is built the right way. I truly believe that. I think we have the right leaders. I think we have the right mindset. I think this team is going to come out and give it their absolute best shot. And if Alabama does come out and throw the first punch and we get behind early, I believe this team will respond in the right way. That doesn't mean that we're going to be able to fight back and win. I can't guarantee that but I don't believe that we'll lay down. I believe that we'll fight back and we will respond the right way and fight until the very bitter end if it comes to that. All right, moving along here, we've spent a good amount of time talking about the Alabama passing attack so far today, but let's talk about the run game a little bit because our next question from Jonathan, always appreciate it, Jonathan, asks, how worried are you about Bama getting Brian Robinson back to full health? He looked fresh, he ran hard, he reminds me of Najee, but a little less athletic. And this is a good question, because the fact is, in the SEC Championship game a month or so ago, Brian Robinson was certainly not 100%. He got hurt in the Auburn game in the Iron Bowl. He 
aggravated a hamstring injury and those are really hard to play with period and even if you give it a go you're a shell of yourself you're certainly not close to being the player that you normally are without the hamstring injury you really can't open it up and run and just explode with a hamstring injury like that so props him for giving it a go but the fact is he was not much of a factor in that game he had 16 carries for 55 yards 3.4 yards per attempt no touchdowns I think he had a couple of catches, two catches for 16 yards, but clearly did not make the kind of impact that you saw him make in the college playoff semifinal against Cincinnati in the Cotton Bowl last week, where he went for 204 yards on 26 carries, averaging 7.8 yards per attempt. So the hamstring injury, I don't want to say it's a thing of the past because those things take a while to like fully go away. It's certainly something that at any given point, if he really tries to open up and run, that it could get re-aggravated. But a month removed from the injury, he was clearly far closer to 100% last week against Cincinnati than he was back in the SEC Championship game. But I know this sounds crazy. When you're talking about a player who just went for 200-plus yards in a college playoff semifinal game, but the status of Brian Robinson, his health doesn't really concern me all that much. I think the best thing it does for them is it helps them in pass protection. I said that in the preview show going back to the SEC Championship game. The biggest concern for Alabama heading into that game in in terms of not having Brian Robinson had to be from a protection standpoint because Trey Sanders simply just had not played much at all. And when you insert an inexperienced player like that in a game of that magnitude against a defense that is as strong and as aggressive, typically aggressive as we are, that could have been a major problem for them. So getting Brian Robinson back from a protection standpoint, I think that helps, but I don't think that's all of a sudden going to kickstart their run game to the point where, oh yeah, Brian Robinson is going to run for 200 yards against our defense. Because the fact is, nobody has done that against us all year. No one has even come close to that. No team as a whole has rushed for more than 161 yards on us. That was Florida. No single player has rushed for more than 69 yards in a single game against us this season. That was also in the Florida game. That was Damian Pierce. And despite what he did against Cincinnati, newsflash guys, Brian Robinson ain't the best running back we faced this year. He's really not even close. He benefits from being on the same team as all the players around him that open up a lot of room for him to operate. Chris Rodriguez from Kentucky is a better running back than Brian Robinson. Tank Bigsby from Auburn is a better running back than Brian Robinson. Tyler Beatty from Missouri is an infinitely more talented running back than Brian Robinson. You know, what's the narrative around Brian Robinson? Well, you know, he's been around here for five years. This is the first year he's ever actually gotten to start. Why is that, guys? Well, it's because he's not all that talented. Yeah, he waited his turn. There's some great players ahead of him, but he wasn't playing ahead of them because he wasn't as good as them. He's not explosive. We know he's big, he's strong, he's powerful, but he's not an explosive back. And you couple that with the potential injuries they have along the offensive line where they could very well be without their starting right guard and right tackle. And I just really have a hard time believing that Brian Robinson is going to be a decisive factor in this game, healthy or not. I know he ran wild in the Cotton Bowl against Cincinnati. I know that's the most recent thing in our memory. That's what we've seen most recently. But there's context there. Cincinnati is very undersized up front. They run a 3-3-5 scheme, very similar to what Arkansas ran. And remember what we did to Arkansas, guys? When you have these teams, the reason these teams run 3-3-5 schemes is because they don't have enough quality defensive linemen. And the linemen that Cincinnati had just simply weren't big enough to hold up against Alabama's offensive line. I mean, go back and watch that game, guys. I mean, look at some of the massive Mack truck-sized holes that Brian Robinson had to operate through. I mean, he was getting to the second and third level without being touched the vast majority of the time. It wasn't like he was just running through people over and over again. He was making incredible cuts and getting into space. That's not what happened in that game. Alabama's offensive line just flat out cleared the way for him against that 3-3-5 defense, which has shown to be this season. Teams have kind of figured that out. That's how you attack those teams. If you have a strong running game, you can really, really exploit those defenses by running the ball over and over and over again. So yeah, I mean, getting Brian Robinson back healthy, that's certainly not a bad thing for Alabama. I do think it helps them in protection. But again, I just don't think that's a decisive factor in this game. All right, up next, we've got another question from Jonathan. Jonathan also asks, what is your mindset heading into this game? Are you just as hopeful as the SEC Championship? If we don't pull it off, will it hurt you just as bad as it has in the past? Or has the SEC Championship brought you down enough that it won't hurt as bad or won't be as surprising? 
oh man, every single loss hurts pretty much the same for me. They all feel about the same. I don't handle them very well. It's not that I get like angry and start throwing things and screaming and cursing. That's not what happens for me. I just go into a dark place and really just exhibit a lot of the telltale signs of genuine grief. I get despondent, I lose energy, I get lethargic, apathetic, those kind of things. So they all kind of hit me the same. Now, certainly some hit worse than others. I mean, going back to the 2017 National Championship game, we lost that game the way that we lost it. It was a very strange experience for me. Never really been in a game of that magnitude, obviously, in my lifetime. And for us to lose that game the way that we lost it, the, the best way to describe how I felt in the immediate aftermath was just numb. I essentially just, I didn't have any feelings. I was incapable of feeling emotions at that time, probably for like 24 hours or so. And then after that, man, it just, you know, it was a couple of weeks where I was just, um, I was in the doldrums, man. It was, it was tough. So certainly some hit harder than others, but a loss is a loss, man. They all feel very similar for me. But recent years as really kind of like a survival mechanism, as a way to protect myself from those like deep, dark, heavy emotions after a loss. I just kind of adopt the attitude of like, I prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Like literally going into every game, that's kind of my mindset. I'm prepared for the worst to happen. And by God, I just hope that it doesn't happen. Now, obviously there are degrees to that as well. Like it's not the same going into a game against Vanderbilt as it is going into a game against Alabama. I mean, I can say on one hand against Vanderbilt, I prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. But honestly, like going to that game, I'm not prepared to lose to Vanderbilt, but just mentally preparing yourself for that possibility, I found it's kind of like a way to help deflect some of those emotions to, to some degree. So, I mean, going to this game, I honestly, I believe, and we'll talk more about this when we get to the preview episode, I believe we're the better team. I told you guys that back a couple weeks ago going into the SEC Championship game, going into round one. I thought we were the better team. I still think we are the better team. We didn't play as well as we needed to in that game. I loathed our defensive game plan, but I still think we're the better team, and I think that we're going to win this football game. I really do, but that doesn't mean that I'm taking some, like, bravado into this game saying there's no way that we're going to lose this game we've got this i know that that's not me that's not my personality and i res i respect i'm jealous of people who can operate in that fashion i just can't so i'm going to this game intellectually feeling very strongly that we are the superior football team and if we play up to our capabilities that we're going to win the football game but on the flip side i'm also fully prepared for that loss. I'm prepared for it so that I can kind of cushion the blow if it does, God forbid, indeed happen. And honestly, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't know if that's healthy or not. I know that's just kind of the mindset that I've started to adopt over the past couple of years. And I mean, I guess it works for me to some degree, but but I still don't know the answer. I really don't have the, the right answer, the correct answer to be able to handle losses better. I've gotten better at it as I've gotten older, but it still sucks. Okay, next up, let's go to a question from our good friend Alexander. We always appreciate Alexander. And Alexander says, Salyer did a great job defending Aiden Hutchinson one-on-one -on -one, and then asked, do you think he can have a similar performance against Will Anderson? Yeah, that's another good question. Alexander, just like Aiden Hutchinson, Will Anderson is completely capable of of flat out wrecking your game plan and taking over a game. I think he should have been in New York alongside Aiden Hutchinson. I think both those guys deserve to be there. I think it's kind of criminal that he was not. And he is absolutely a game-changing elite pass rusher off the edge. But in saying that, we actually, I felt like we handled Anderson fairly well in round one. I mean, we held him to one sack, two tackles for loss. I mean, those aren't great numbers, but it's not like particularly bad either when you're considering who that player is and how destructive Will Anderson was in multiple games this season. And added to that, Jamari Salyer played in that game and was not 100%. I don't even really know if Jamari's fully 100% now, but he was much further away from 100% a month ago when we played them back in early December. So the fact that Jamari is much closer to being 100% and the way that he handled Aiden Hutchinson, he didn't do that alone, but he was mashed up with him one-on-one -on -one plenty of times and really, really handled his business very well. It certainly gives me confidence heading into this game. But again, we're talking about an elite pass rusher. Will Anderson is dynamic. I think he's more athletic. He's longer than Aiden Hutchinson. He has a very similar motor to Hutchinson. He's not quite as powerful as Aiden Hutchinson, but make no mistake about it. He is a dynamic playmaker off the edge, and we're going to have to have a plan for him just like we did 
a couple of weeks ago, but I, I'm certainly more confident about our chances to kind of relatively hold him in check. It's just like Hutchinson. I don't know if, well, I guess we did completely shut down Hutchinson. I, I said come to the game. I don't know if you completely shut down a guy like that, but we kind of did. Now, I don't know if you're going to see a repeat performance here against Will Anderson, but I do think that we have the ability with a guy like Jamari Sauer with his experience and his strength there on the edge along with the fact that we love to use two and three tight ends out there on the field at a given time in 12 and 13 personnel, in conjunction with just how impressive Todd Munkin has been designing game plans to have answers for the defense's best players, I feel pretty good about our chances to, at the very least, not allow Will Anderson to take over this game. And again, that's what I said coming into the Michigan game, was that we just needed to make sure that Aiden Hutchinson was not able to take over the game. He's going to make his plays. He's going to do what he's going to do, but we can't let him completely wreck our game plan. Now, I did not foresee us doing exactly what we did to him and completely take him out of that game. And again, I can't sit here and say that we're going to completely do that to Will Anderson, but we just can't allow him to take over this game. And I think with Salyer back closer to 100%, with Todd Munkin designing game plans, with the tight ends that we have to, to help out in those situations with Will Anderson to chip him, things of that nature, I feel pretty good about our chances to at least hold him relatively in check, which is, again, what I think we did for the most part in round one. All right, with our next question, let's go to a question from Adam. And Adam asks, in a rematch like this against two relatively evenly matched opponents, who do you give the advantage to? The team that won the first time around or the team that lost the first game? It's a great question, Adam. We, we talked about this, I guess, a little bit following the, uh, the, the loss to Alabama initially a couple of weeks ago, but I was hesitant to go too far in that direction because we had to beat Michigan first and I wanted to focus our attention there. Well, we accomplished that goal. We beat Michigan, and now we have secured the rematch with Alabama. So let's dig into this question. And I do think it's important that you drew the, the distinction there, Adam, that these are two very evenly matched teams from a talent standpoint. If you look at the 247 team composite talent ratings, Georgia and Alabama are number one and number two, and they're separated by like hundreds of a point. All right, the, the difference in talent, at least statistically based on recruiting rankings, is negligible at best. And I think when you're talking about a situation like that, it's very different than, let's say, if we're talking about a rematch between Vanderbilt and Georgia. If we play Vanderbilt 100 times, we're going to beat Vanderbilt 100 times because the talent gap is that significant. They just don't belong on the same field as us. It doesn't matter how many times we play them, how many rematches there are. They're just not going to beat us. But when you have two teams that are this close in talent. I, mean, I think the closer you get in talent, the more that talent gap closes when you're talking about a rematch, the more it favors the team that lost the first time around. And I know it's easy for me to say that because I'm a Georgia guy and Georgia lost that first round, right? So yeah, of course you want to say, you want to believe, maybe I'm just talking myself into that we have an edge here in the rematch since we lost the first time around. And maybe that's true. Maybe, I don't know, maybe there's something deep in my psyche that I'm talking myself into. Sure, whatever. If you want to say that, call me a homer, that's fine. But I do, I firmly believe that the team that lost the first time around has the advantage going into the rematch. And the reason I believe that, it's not based off just simply psychology. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm sure there's some of that. Sure, you're hungry, you're motivated, you're angry, you want to get revenge. Sure, that's a part of it. But there's like an actual like tactical strategic part of this that I think it's overlooked. Because the reality is when you lose that first game, you are very aware of the fact that what you did that first time around, the strategies that you employed clearly did not work. Therefore, when you are preparing for, when you're game planning for the rematch, you are very likely to alter the plan that you took into the first round. You're not going to play them the same way because the way you played them the first time around, especially when you lost by 17 points, did not work. So you're going to make those adjustments. You're going to make those changes. You're going to make those tweaks. And it's harder for the team that won the first game to prepare for that because they don't know what you're going to do. They can think, oh, I guess you know, we got to operate off the assumption that, hey, this is what they did the first time around. So I guess we have to prepare for this the second time around. They're not going to be as well prepared because they don't know what tweaks, what changes, what adjustments 
you're going to throw at them. Whereas conversely, on the flip side, the team that won the first time, why would they change anything? What they did work. Now, there might be some minor tweaks. They might have a few adjustments here and there, but generally they are far less likely to make wholesale changes in the way they approach the first game. They're very un unlikely to make those wholesale changes to their game plan because what they did the first time around works. So it's easier for that team that lost to prepare for them because you know you, you have a much better idea. It's far more likely that what they did to you the first time is going to be exactly what they're going to try to do the second time. So you don't have you don't have that element of the unknown as much as the team that won does dealing with the adjustments that the team that lost the first game is very likely to make. So when you factor that in along with like in the motivational edge, the hunger edge, the the revenge factor, I do think that gives at least some sort of edge coming into the rematch to the team that lost the first matchup. And in that case, obviously, that would be the Georgia Bulldogs. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, we got a couple more questions here. Next up, we're going to go with a question from Jay Lee. Thank you for the question. And Jay Lee asks, who would you use to mirror or spy Bryce Young? Clearly, using defensive tackles is the wrong answer. Yes, Jay Lee, you are correct. Using defensive tackles is the wrong answer. And that's one of the adjustments I'm talking about here. There, now, we didn't do this every time that we were mirroring or spying Bryce Young, but there were multiple cases, multiple examples in that first matchup against Alabama where we were using Devontae Wyatt and Jalen Carter to spy Bryce Young. We would rush three defenders and we would drop one of the front four guys, be it Wyatt or Carter, back into spy mode. And that was one of the most egregious mistakes that I saw from our defensive game plan. I didn't like the structure in general, just how passive we were in trying to defend Alabama and Bryce Young. But the decision in some key spots to use defensive tackles as spies, as mirrors on Bryce Young was frankly asinine. And where it really killed us the most was that last touchdown that Alabama scored to close out the first half. Remember, we came back, we, we uh, jumped out to a 10-0 lead, then we let Alabama score 17 straight points, and they get up 17-10. But then we answer right before the end of the first half. We answer, we get the screen pass, Lab McConkie, we tied at 17, I think like just over two minutes left. And I turned to my wife in the stadium and I said, that's great, that's awesome, I'm pumped up, but that's a lot of time left. We cannot let them score here. And what did we do? Of course, we let them drive the length of the field and they score a touchdown. I think with like just a hair under 30 seconds left. And it's Bryce Young who runs in for 11 yards for the touchdown. And I bring that drive up because in two key instances on that drive, we assigned a defensive tackle to spy Bryce Young as athletic and as elusive as he is. And look, I get it. Jalen Carter and Devontae Wyatt are about as athletic of players as you're going to find at the defensive tackle position anywhere in this country. That is very true, but I do not care. The, even the most athletic defensive tackle in the history of the world is no match for a guy like Bryce Young in space with the elusiveness that he brings to the table. It is no contest. And that absolutely proved to be the case in that first game. Because if you remember, guys, remember uh, the play, it was actually the play that Bryce Young fumbled and Nolan Smith, instead of jumping on the ball, he tries to like reach down, pick it up, and Bryce Young is able to kind of reach out and grab it. And that was one of those plays that could have changed the game right there. If we get, if we get, get that ball and they don't score there, it could very well just be a totally different ball game. But he did recover. But if you remember the start of that play, the way it got to that point is Bryce Young scrambled. It was a second and 10, and Bryce Young scrambles around the left side. I think he ended up like it's a 14 or 15 yard gain. And it was Devontae Wyatt who we had assigned to spy him, to be that guy that was going to contain him in the pocket. And there was no chance. Devontae Wyatt, athletic guy, he tripped over his own two feet 
trying to defend Bryce Young in space. It was it was embarrassing. But all right, okay, you got us. Good for you. You think we would have learned our lesson, right? But no, no. On the very same drive, in fact, I think like two plays later, they got first and ten at our eleven yard line. And we, we cover guys pretty well. One of the few instances in the first half, we were actually covering their receivers fairly well. But Bryce Young is able to escape the pocket when he doesn't see anybody open, and he scrambles for an 11-yard touchdown. He waltzes right in the end zone. Why? Because the guy that we had assigned to spy him, to mirror him, was another defensive tackle, this time Jalen Carter. And Jalen Carter is a freakishly athletic defensive tackle, but again, it doesn't matter how athletic he is for a defensive tackle. He's no match for a guy like Bryce Young in space. And once again, within two plays of the embarrassing play there by Devontae Wyatt, you have the exact same situation just with a different defensive tackle and the very same result. So yes, Jay Lee, I 1 million percent agree with you. That is not the answer. So who who is the answer? Well, it can't be the same guy every play, okay? It's that simple. It can't be the same guy every play because you get too predictable. You're going to have to switch it up. The good thing for us is that we have multiple players with a lot of versatility who can do that. It can be Channing Tindall. It could be Quay Walker. It could be N'Kobe Dean. It could be William Poole. It could be Lewis Seen. It could be Chris Smith. There's different guys that we can do that with. I am not like super comfortable with it being Trayvon Walker, but I'd be more comfortable with it being Walker than I would be with like an interior defensive tackle. He's a little bit more athletic. It could even be Nolan Smith. Nolan can handle that. Nolan moves very, very well. But we're gonna have to switch up who that guy is because you just can't be that predictable. And look, I, I'll, I'll give the coaches a, a little bit of a break here. I understand why they were trying to use teams to tackles because they wanted to make sure. Our coaches were very concerned, clearly, handed that game with the game plan, the, what, with what we came out with from a game plan perspective defensively. They were clearly concerned, horrified even, scared to death of what Alabama could do to our secondary with the pass game. So therefore, we were trying to keep as many defenders in coverage as we possibly could. Because if you use N'Kobe Dean or Quay Walker to spy Bryce Young, well, then you're taking one of those guys out of coverage and you're giving the numbers advantage to Alabama, which is always one of the benefits of having a dual threat quarterback like that. So our coaches, their calculus was that, well, it's more important to stop the passing game. How are we going to do that? Well, we think the best way to do that is just keep a lot of guys into coverage and we're not going to focus as much on rushing the passer, and we're going to use defensive tackles who would otherwise be rushing to spy Bryce Young. And that was an unmitigated disaster. It, it just clearly was, because when you use defensive tackle to spy, not only do you have a guy who's less athletic, who just can't hold up in space against a guy as elusive as Bryce Young, you're also not only rushing three defenders, and you're allowing Bryce Young all freaking day back there to operate, and that's just a recipe again for disaster. And going back to the last question, that's one of those things that I do hope that we change and adjust in our game plan heading into this game, which is hopefully one of those things that maybe Alabama is not going to be as well prepared for because we didn't show it as much the first time around. But to answer your question, Jay Leaf, I had to pick one guy. I think the best guy to use ideally would be N'Kobe Dean because we know how fast he is, we know how athletic he is, and we know how well he generally tackles in space, which is one of the key things of Bryce Young. You got to be able to break down and get him down once he gets into space. And I think Nicobe gives us the best chance to do that. But I think any of our linebackers could, could do that as well. I think Nicobe or Quay would be my top two, and then Channing Tindall after that. Tindall's a little stiffer in space, so I wouldn't favor him ahead of the other two, but I would certainly prefer to use him in that scenario ahead of a defensive tackle. All right, well, that brings us to our last question for today. And this one comes from John Picker. Always appreciate the questions, John. And John says that he still wishes Todd Munkin would use Darnell Washington more in the red zone. He asks, am I missing something or is he just not the guy to use in those situations? No, John, I'm with you, man, 100%. I love Todd Munkin. I've been very clear on how much respect I have for him and how much a part of the success that we've had this season, I think that he has been. I know people are giving our offense a hard time, but just go look at the efficiency numbers. We're just about as efficient as anyone in the country offensively, and he's done it with a mash unit for most of the year. Now we're getting a lot of those guys back healthy, and you're starting to see some of the things that we can do with everybody healthy. But that doesn't mean he's perfect. No coach is, and I agree with you. I think that Darnell Washington is an untapped tool, an untapped resource to use in the red zone. He did have that touchdown in the first half against Alabama, we got him matched up one-on-one with Henry Toho, and that's a matchup that Darnell Washington is going to win the vast majority of the time. We basically just threw it up to him, threw it up for grabs, 50-50 ball, and Darnell was huge and massive and just went up and took it away from Toho. And I think Darnell is a guy that we can use in fashions like that on a more consistent basis once we get in the red zone. 
I mean, even lining him up out wide and throwing a fade to him, that is a, a battle that I think he's going to win the majority of the time. I mean, that, that play against Alabama where he scored the touchdown, he was lined up in line, handing the dirt as a tight end and just ran like what we used to call back when I was in Little League, we called like a tight end dump. Like that, was literally, that was literally the name of the play back when I was like eight years old because I played tight end back then and they called the play tight end dump and my face would just light up like, hi, it's coming to me, let's go. But that play was about as simple as it gets. But when you have a guy that's that big and that physical in that scenario, it doesn't have to be complicated. And I think sometimes we do, and not just Todd Mung, but teams in general, offense coordination, you get in the red zone, they tend to outthink themselves, get a little too cute. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's as simple as find your best matchup, find your physical freak and get him the football. And I think Darnell Washington is one of those guys that we could certainly use more consistently once we get in those situations. And honestly, I would say in general, I think Darnell Washington, not just in the red zone, but I think just anywhere on the field. He's one of our most underutilized playmakers. And look, I, I understand that a big part of that is the emergence of Brock Bowers. When you have a guy that has been as freakish as Brock has been and as dominant as Brock has been really since week one, it's harder to get the other tight ends involved in the pass game. I mean, but you look at Darnell Washington, he only has nine catches this year, nine catches for 145 yards as that one touchdown they had against Alabama. I think we need to get him more involved in the passing game in general. But on the other hand, we do a really good job of just giving what the defense takes us. And if the defense is not giving us Darnell Washington, then that's fine. I guess we're going to take other people who who are open to the defense is, is kind of giving us in those situations. And I do want to also want to say, just again, kind of defending the coaches here, Darnell, you know, he obviously missed the first part of the season with the foot injury. He's obviously been back for a you know, couple of months now, but even though he came back, doesn't mean he was 100% healthy. And you can see he he's now starting to move about like he was during spring practice. But for much of the year, he's kind of lumbering out there. He, I don't think he had his full confidence in the foot back, his full speed back, kind of working himself back. I think he's gotten closer to that now. And we'll see if that pays dividends in the national championship game. I don't know. But I do agree with your general premise there, John, that we do need to get Darnell more involved in the passing game, especially in the red zone. But all right, guys, that's a wrap on our college football playoff mailbag. We have emptied it out. If you send in a question after I record this, I'm sorry, man, I really am. We'll try to get to it next week at some point, but I tried my best over these last two episodes to get to all the questions that I saw. We always try our best. I, I know we're not perfect at it, but we try our best to give you guys as much of a voice on this podcast as we possibly can because this show is for you guys. That's why we started it all these years ago, I think seven years ago now. This is a podcast made by diehard Georgia fans for diehard Georgia fans, and we want to make sure to include you guys in this show as much as we possibly can. So thank you for all the questions, and keep them coming, guys, all throughout the offseason. Obviously, win or lose, I know that you're going to have a lot of questions coming out of the National Championship game, so please do not be shy. Send us those questions on Twitter, at Glory underscore UGA, Instagram, just search up Glory UGA Podcast. You can also email them to us at gloryugapodcast at gmail.com. But thank you for listening, guys. Thank you for all the questions. We are not done this week. Curtis and I will be back on Thursday evening for our official college football national championship preview episode. I promise you, you are not going to want to miss that episode. We're going to cover this thing from every angle imaginable. So make sure to come back and check that out later this week. But thank you for listening. I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs. <laughs>